Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the uh, Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1 is where we are this morning. It's where we've been for the last, uh, we've been journeying through the Gospel of Mark for the last four weeks or so, and we will be here for the next 74 weeks, Lord willing, if he doesn't return by the time that we're finished. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28 is where we'll begin reading this morning. It's your first time with us as we're uh, journeying through the book of Mark. Allow me to provide just a quick recap of where we've been. In verse 1, Mark gives us the theme of what is to come. He defines the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This book has Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, as its main character. In fact, every single paragraph in the Gospel of Mark, outside of two, which highlight John the Baptist, every other paragraph but two, has Jesus as the main character. Verses 2 through 8, Jesus is introduced by a voice crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist. John the Baptist introduces Jesus as one who is mightier than he, one whose sandals he is not worthy of untying, one who has the very power to immerse people in the Spirit of God. Then Jesus shows up in verse 9, and he is baptized like all the rest of the people coming to symbolize their faith and repentance. But Jesus' baptism is not like anybody else's because when Jesus rises out of the waters, the heavens themselves tear open and a voice from heaven is declared, this is my son of whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus is shown sort of quickly making a beeline to the wilderness where he's got an appointment to overcome Satan himself. He is tempted for 40 days By Satan himself, and unlike Adam and Eve who fell in the garden, unlike Israel who sinned in the wilderness, Jesus overcomes the temptation and does not give in. He proves himself to be righteous, able to withstand the temptations that you and I give in to. And then, last week we saw, uh, I think in verse 14... Uh, In verse 14, we saw Jesus' first words in, in the gospel, the first recorded words of our Savior. He begins to preach, to proclaim. He he begins to proclaim that the time is at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand, and your response should be to believe and repent, so that you might have your citizenship transferred from the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God. We learned last week that the gospel, the good news of God, is an invitation to be a part of a new kingdom that's coming. A new kingdom where man is no longer the one striving and fighting to sit on the throne, where evil is no longer present, but where God sits where he deserves to sit, the throne over all the universe. And things are restored to the way things were, and even better than they were, before the fall of mankind. And then, after Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God is coming, uh, you need to repent and believe. We're thrust into this next story, where Jesus calls his first followers. And you see what repentance and belief really looks like. It looks like following a new king. Simon and Andrew and James and John, Jesus approaches them and says, follow me. And they drop everything. And they follow this new king. They leave behind their ways of life. 
and not knowing where it's going to lead, all they know is this guy saying the kingdom of God is here and we need to follow him. They, they repent and believe. They follow Jesus. And everything we've seen thus far in the Gospel of Mark has been introductory. What Mark's doing, he's trying to paint a picture of Jesus that will help you interpret what Jesus does. The, this little season that we're about to enter into of studying the Gospel of Mark will just be event after event after event, very quickly moving from one activity of Jesus to the next. And you're supposed to see these activities of Jesus through the lens of the identity that's already been proclaimed. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the King who is here to establish a kingdom. And all of these miracles are meant to verify that identity. These miracles are meant to show you this really is who Mark has said this is, who God the Father has said this is, who Jesus himself says he is. And so now, beginning with verse 21... We enter into the day-to-day ministry of Jesus as he actually begins to do some stuff, okay? So Mark chapter 1, verse 21, I'll read all the way through verse 28, and then we'll just pause and uh, pray for God to give us understanding this morning. Verse 21. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath... He entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in in this synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with this Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray together. Father, we pray right now that each of us would recognize the spiritual war that is happening even in this moment, to keep us from hearing the words of God and responding to them in faith and repentance. Father, we pray, help us by the power of your Spirit to read and understand and be changed by the truth that you've preserved for thousands of years for us to see who Jesus is by both his teachings and his actions, God. I pray that as I speak, I would speak in a way that is empowered by the Spirit of God, pointing only to the Word of God, we pray. By your grace and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 21, again. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So let me paint the picture for you of what's happening here. 
The synagogue was the religious gathering place for the Jews every Saturday. It would have been experienced, not exactly like what we experience in our Sunday morning church service, but it would have been similar to a worship gathering. They gather to hear someone open a scroll, because uh, not everybody has just their own carry-along Bibles, right? So they hear to, to someone open a scroll and read aloud from the Word of God, and they, they hope that someone will offer commentary on it. Someone to explain what has been read, to explain what God's done in the past, what God's doing now, what God's doing in the future. It wouldn't necessarily be uh, the same person preaching every week, uh, but it would have to be someone who is learned, someone who has been studying perhaps for that week. Oftentimes, it would be a traveling rabbi or a traveling teacher who would be asked to stand up and give a word or give an explanation on a particular text of Scripture. The Gospels record Jesus doing this several times throughout his travel. And apparently, in Jesus' preaching ministry, apparently his proclaiming of the kingdom of God, uh, has earned him an invitation to share some teaching at the local synagogue. Now, I want to I pause just there uh, briefly, because I think this is significant. Thus far in the story, we've not seen Jesus perform a single miracle. We've only seen some supernatural things happen around him. We've seen some things um, uh, being spoken about him by other people, by God the Father. Uh, But all we've seen Jesus do thus far in the story, he's opened his mouth and proclaimed things. Thus far, he's just proclaimed the kingdom of God. He said it's, it's at hand, repeat, repent and believe in the gospel. He has said the words, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. He's been busy with word ministry thus far. And and I I want to make this clear that throughout the the New Testament, uh, and I think you'll especially even see next week, Jesus places a high priority on, on people hearing, understanding, and believing a true message about what God was doing in the world. In fact, in many places, you might say that this is actually even more of a priority than the miracles that he's doing. The miracles that he's doing are serving to support the words that he's speaking. The the priority of Jesus is that people hear true things about God, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do, and that people then respond to those, those true things. Jesus was very much a a teacher of truth, and his desire was that people would put away falsehoods and would embrace truth. Now, imagine with me that you're one of those in the synagogue on that day, okay? You've come with your family to hear some teaching, to meet with other Jews who believe in the one true God, Yahweh. You're coming to the synagogue like any other week to hear from God's word, but this week is not like any other week. There's a buzz in the air about a new teacher who is going to offer the teaching that day. Perhaps you've, you've caught wind of John the Baptist's message about this one who is to come. Perhaps you've heard of some, some pretty crazy things that happened at Jesus' baptism, some strange weather par- uh, patterns and some, some sounds of thunder, some sort of voice coming from heaven when he, when he was raised out of the water. Perhaps you're just there and you've heard that he's been preaching on the street about the kingdom of God. Nevertheless, you're a little excited that there's a change in pace. There's a new voice to be heard, a new teaching to come on Saturday. And then Jesus stands up and begins to speak. Look at verse 22. 
and they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Truth number one this morning that I want you to walk away with is this, that Jesus came to teach with authority. The minute Jesus begins to open his mouth, everyone knows that there's something different about this man and this teaching. His words, as this man begins to speak, his words capture you. You can't fall asleep during this man's teaching. They arrest you. They, 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 they draw you in. There's something about his compassion and his gentleness and his truthfulness and his authority that draw you in. He spoke in a way that the text says it astonished the listener. Now the word for astonished could be translated amazed, to be, to be in awe, or even to strike with panic. The word astonished represents a whole host of emotions that were being experienced by those who were listening to this uh, interesting teacher. But most encounters with God have this kind of effect on you. There's, there's joy, there's amazement, there's awe, and then at the same time there's fear and panic all at the same time. There's, man, I want to hear what this God has to say, and there's, oh no, I'm afraid of what this God has to say. <laughs> Perhaps you've heard of a uh, if you're in this setting, uh, in the synagogue on that day, you've heard a lot of scribes before. You've heard a lot of people come in who were highly literate Jewish teachers who gave their time and attention to studying and explaining, and, and they were experts in the law, and they worked their craft of communication. But this guy was different. The thing that was most different about him was that he spoke with authority. Now, what does it mean to speak with authority? Well, if you look up the word authority and what authority means, you'll find the definition is that authority is the power or right to control, to judge, to prohibit the actions of others. Authority is the legitimate power that a person or a group possesses and practices over a group of other people. Right? So, so I got um, stopped on St. Rose Avenue yesterday because my brake tag was... a was uh, uh, not up to date, all right? Uh, and, and in that moment, the police officer had the authority to write me a ticket or to let me go with a warning. He had that authority. Now, if one of you would have stopped me on the road and told me that my brake tag was uh, out of date and I needed to pay you $20, I would say no, right? You, you don't have the authority to, to exert that kind of power over me. But this police officer had the authority. And praise God, he had some grace. Uh, and he just gave me a warning. But what does it mean when someone teaches with authority? Well, when Jesus spoke, he did not appeal to the commentaries of other scribes or teachers from the past. When Jesus spoke, he did not entertain debates of the age or uh, uh, offer commentary on recent political happenings. He did not preach to impress with his rhetoric. When this man spoke, he spoke as if he himself had the authority to declare what was true and to declare how you should live. It was as if he was the one who had the authority to declare 
truth versus falsehood. He spoke as if there was no one outside of himself to quote. There was no need to cite other sources because he was the source. No plagiarism in Jesus' sermons. He was the source of truth and instruction. He spoke as if he himself had the authority to hold his listeners accountable for how they would respond or not respond. And he spoke this way because it is this way. I mean, I mean this is what it means for the king to have arrived. <laughs> Jesus is king. God is the designer and definer of what is true because he is the creator of all things. He is the, the ultimate truth from which all other truth flows. And Jesus, the eternal son of God, king of kings, lord of lords, he is the one, hands down, that has the authority to declare what should be and what is. And the call of Christianity, therefore, is a call as we saw last week, to surrender to the absolute, unmatched, uncontested authority of Jesus over our lives. And these guys, when Jesus said, follow me, they, they, they let go of everything else to follow the one who had the authority to say, follow me. He teaches and we're astonished. He speaks and we submit. And we hate that. I mean, if you think about it, the nature of our sin is our desire to take authority from God. There's something in you that resists authority. When someone tells you what to do, you squirm, right? I've had conversations with members of this church who have admitted to me that when someone tells them what to do, even if they know it is what's best for them, they will immediately not do it, <laughs> They will immediately not want to do it. And it starts at an early age. Right? If you got kids, you know. Oh, and don't touch that. No desire to touch it in the world. And now it is the most tantalizing thing in the world. Because we naturally resist authority. We fall into sin when we write our own rules. We set our own standard. We go our own way. But our job as creature is to listen and submit to creator. We don't get to tell God how he should act. Or how he should, what he should be like. Or what worshiping him should involve. He has the authority and not us. And we live in a culture that not only do we naturally resist authority. Uh, some people would even articulate that authority is actually a bad thing. When our culture thinks about authority, we think of oppression, injustice, and the sin of those in authority. When we think about authority, we typically automatically think about the abuses of authority that we've experienced in our lives. But all authority is not bad. In fact, it's a very good gift. In fact, um, I may be a little frustrated or a little upset by the authority of the police officer who can write me a ticket for not getting my brake tag checked, which is they don't even check it. But anyways, I can be a little frustrated with that, but I'm very thankful that I can call a police officer if someone's breaking down my door to harm my family or steal from my possessions, and he comes to my aid and wields that authority on my behalf. Not all authority is bad. Authority is good when that authority is wielded for your good. Parental authority is good when wielded for the good of their children. 
There's a, there's a beautiful text in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 3 through 4, where, where God's speaking about the, the gift of a good king who wields his authority for the good of his people. This is what it says in 2 Samuel 23. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. When a good king rules over the people for their good, it is for their good. (laughs) And Jesus came to be the good king. He has authority over all of truth and life to command and demand and to set expectations, but he wields it for our good. His teachings for our good. His commands are for his good. His authority is for our good. What he says is for our good. It's a good thing that teaches with God teaches with authority. Because like we need the authority just to make this, this government run, we need authority uh, from the most authoritative one who knows all truth. So let me just pause there very briefly and ask, do you live in this way? Do you live your life as if Jesus has the authority, the right to determine how you should live your life? When you're confronted with his authoritative teaching, do you submit to it or do you turn away from it immediately? Jesus came to teach with authority. And this is for our good. Now, imagine with me again that you're there and you're listening to this Jesus and you've got this range of emotions going on in your heart as he's speaking. He's speaking about your sin. He's speaking about coming redemption. He's speaking about the kingdom of God. And you're hanging on every stinking word and you're listening. He's drawing you in. And then all of a sudden, someone in the congregation abruptly begins to scream. Now, I thought about uh, planting someone in the service this morning uh, to right at this moment just abruptly let out a blood-curdling scream, right? (laughs) Literally in my notes, I said, Alexander would have loved to do this. (laughs) It's literally right here. I'm sure Alexander would have been willing, and then he just did. I was a little fearful, though, that if I did that without warning, some of you may have been jolted awake, but you never would have recovered, <laughs> right? I was afraid that some of you, I mean, you would have needed like a moment to breathe. You would have, we only got one bathroom. You couldn't escape that direction. So, so I decided not to do that, but I just want you to consider what feelings would occur if there was that level of an interruption in the quiet moment of listening to someone's very intense teaching. You know the, that moment when you're driving on the car and uh, perhaps there's something that jumps out in front of you or something and there's that, that, that take your breath away moment, that scared moment, or, or maybe your child's about to fall off the counter and, you're, and you, you jolt and, and then there's this moment where you've got to regain composure and you're breathing hard and your heart's beating. I mean, I just, just imagine that level of a, of a scream being let out and, and the room just, just going into sort of a panic over what had just happened in the service. Verse 23, this is what's described. Immediately, there was in their, in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. 
the Holy One of God. So immediately we're, we're, we're thrust into now this standoff between Jesus, who has the power to immerse people in the Holy Spirit, the clean spirit, and this man who is apparently under the influence of and possessed by an unclean spirit. That is an evil spirit. And truth number two, Jesus came to overcome evil. Jesus came to overcome evil. Now there's a lot to talk about here. Perhaps you're thrown off uh, just by the concept of an unclean spirit or demon possession. Like, like just, just reading that aspect of the story, you're immediately kind of thrown off thinking about what in the world that may be. Maybe you're so influenced by secularism of the day that you have a hard time believing in anything that you cannot observe with your eyes or experience through your senses. I remember doing team Bible studies when I was in college for our, our soccer team, and those team Bible studies were mandatory for the team. It was a Christian school, but none of the teammates were Christians. They were from all over the country, uh, from Europe, from South America. Uh, we, so these moments were these moments where, where I was teaching the Bible study, but there was like 30 people in there that did not believe the Bible <laughs> and uh, were made to be there, so made for really good uh, teaching and learning. Uh, but 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 they would come, and all the European guys would sit together. You've got the Englishmen and the uh, guys from Ireland and Scotland and Czechoslovakia, and you had all these guys um, that are coming from a worldview of total secularism that says only what you see and observe is what is real. Uh, there is nothing spiritual. Then you've got other guys on the other side of the room, and they're from Haiti, Haiti and Trinidad Tobago and Peru and uh, uh, fill in the Blake, Colombia, and they come from cultures where... Um, spiritualism and demonic activity actually strikes whole communities in fear. That there's, these guys would say, no, there's nothing spiritual. And these guys would say, oh, absolutely, there's got to be a God because I've experienced evil before. I've seen the work of demons in the lives of my neighbors and friends and family. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have your own experience with what can only be explained by the the presence of some sort of spiritual evil. I have on more than one occasion been a part of things, and I know some people in this room have been, where it was only explainable by the work of spiritual forces that were beyond our comprehension. But regardless of your experience or your lack of experience with demons... The Bible is clear that there is, in fact, a spiritual realm of which we know only very little. In fact, uh, I think, and I think throughout this text, I I think one of the things that we see uh, about um, uh, the spiritual warfare that we're in is that one of the strategies of Satan, especially in secular context, is to keep his works hidden so that you don't turn to God for help. Uh, They're not terribly concerned that you know that it's them that's doing the destruction, as long as the destruction is being done. Right now, in this moment, you are in the midst of a spiritual warfare. Right now, in the moment of preaching, there are forces at work around you and in you. There's a war between good and evil. There is a desire of the enemy for you not to hear a stinking word of this text or this sermon but to go on living your life the way that you've always lived. We know from the Bible that as early as Genesis chapter 3, a spiritual being took on the form of a serpent and he convinced humanity to join in the rebellion against God. And from that day forward, God promised that that evil being, that serpent, one day would be crushed. 
That one day a seed of Eve would come and crush the serpent's head. Evil would have an end, but for the remainder of the Old Testament, not much is said about demonic activity. We know in the story of Job that Satan is advocating for the destruction of Job. When given the freedom, he attacks his body, he attacks his family, he attacks his possessions. His goal is to get Job to be unfaithful. But after that, very little is said about demonic activity throughout the entire Bible. But when Jesus shows up on the scene, the spiritual war happening behind the scenes becomes visible and undeniable. Throughout the ministry and teaching of Jesus, demons, though though most of the time veiling their work, when Jesus shows up, it's as if they can't help but make themselves known. That they reveal themselves. They, 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 there's this confrontation when Jesus arrives on the scene. The New Testament authors, then looking at this moment and seeing these manifestations of evil, they offer commentary on what's constantly happening in the spiritual realm around God's people. We learn that demons are actually seeking our destruction. Peter Having walked with Jesus and seen these manifestations over and over, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We learn that demons are seeking our deception. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says that in their case, and Satan's described as the god of this world, little g, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Jesus himself in eight, John 8, 44 says, You're, you are of the father, the devil. Your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he has been a liar from the beginning. Look down at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 or up at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. And I think this is perhaps one of the scariest descriptions of Satan Verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 11, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It seems that the evil spirits of the world have it as their goal to attack, deceive, and destroy, and they don't care whether you're aware of it or not. They would rather actually veil themselves as angels of light, as good things, as long as your life is being destroyed. We would do well. To be aware and prepared for the spiritual war we find ourselves in. One of the interesting things about this text, and I've never noticed this before until studying it this week, was that the demon-possessed guy in the case of Mark is presented as just having been present for the day's teaching in the synagogue. The story doesn't go like this. It's not that Jesus was preaching and teaching and the back door flies open and the demon-possessed man runs in and interrupts the service. The, the text does not say he burst in the synagogue. The text just says he was in the synagogue. So for all we know, this guy has sat and listened for much of Jesus' teaching. For all we know, this guy's a regular churchgoer. He's a regular attender to the synagogue. There was no reason to be alarmed that he was present among them. Perhaps you've met some churchgoers in your day that you think might fit into that category. I know some pastors that would say some deacons they think are in that category. In the church, very much involved in the synagogue, but also very much influenced by the evil one. 
I believe most demonic work happens beneath the surface and behind the scenes. But in this moment, in the middle of Jesus' teaching, the spiritual war within and around becomes manifest. It just comes to light. What's happening in and around the people just comes for everybody to see. It's almost as if the demon within this man can no longer contain the vexation at what he is hearing and experiencing in the teaching of Jesus. I mean, it's almost as if the demon within this man erupts, cries out in intense fear and confrontation. Look at verse 24. Look at the words of the demon. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Apparently, Jesus' presence, his teaching, his pure holiness, his very being, something supernatural that I can't even put into words, apparently, whatever it is, Jesus' presence was made known to the demons so clearly before anyone else in the room knew who Jesus was. At this point, most people in the room just think, like, man, this guy's a sick teacher. <laughs> like, he's just, man, this, guy, this guy's good. We should get him a back on Sundays. Like, we could, we could draw a crowd. But the demon inside this man is trembling because he knows that the Holy One of God has attended this morning, and he's the one standing and speaking. He knows exactly who Jesus was, exactly what Jesus came to do, and he shrieks, what have you to do with us? Now, why us? Why the plural? Perhaps there's more than one evil spirit in this guy, but I I don't think so, because I think that what's happening here is this one spirit is is speaking on behalf of all the evil realm. (laughs) I think he's saying, are you here for us? Are you coming? Have you come to destroy us? And and this is amazing. It seems that even the demons knew that they are on the losing side of an, an inevitable end. It seems that the demons understand what's coming. That they get, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, if the kingdom of God is fully established on earth, then the kingdom of evil will be obliterated. And so they're asking a question, or he's asking a question, because he's fearful that that we're at this step of world history where all of evil comes to an end. And so he asks, Have you come to destroy us? Is this the end? The demons have good reason to fear because the Holy One of God has arrived. Uh, This is sort of a side note, but one of the things that you notice throughout the Gospels with all these confrontations between Jesus and the demons, you never see the demons, like, attacking Jesus. Like, like when Jesus shows up and the demons make themselves manifest, you never see the demons like, okay, let's go. (laughs) 
You never see him like throwing things or hurling things or like, like casting spells or I don't know, whatever demony things do. Like you never see them like on the attack, like on the affront when Jesus shows up. It's always this sort of blubbering, groveling, like falling on, on their face, pleading, not yet. <laughs> don't do us in just yet. Now, if you're in the congregation at this point, right? You're a little freaked out, okay? <laughs> First you were scared, now you're just freaked out. This dude, is this, this demon-possessed man saying some crazy stuff, he's hurling these questions at Jesus, and you're looking around and you're like, do we have like somebody who takes care of people like this? You're looking around at your biggest guys in the synagogue, and you're like, who's taking this brother out? And they're like, I ain't doing it. Like, you doing it? I mean, everybody's like, what are we going to do about this guy? And then, of course, your eyes go from the congregation to the man, back to the congregation, then back up to Jesus, and you're looking at Jesus. I mean, this is a traveling teacher. He's not even really like one of us or one of our dudes. What's he going to do? Is he going to tuck his tail and run? Is he going to haul off and punch the guy? I mean, what is this very good teacher going to do? Is he fearful? Is he at a loss of words? And verse 25 says this. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? I love that phrase. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> like, what, what is happening? Like, church was sweet this morning. Like, what is going on? <laughs> A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, fame, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And I can just, I just imagine this moment of, of where Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching, and his countenance is one of, of joy and, and comfort and gentleness, but also sternness and authority, and he's teaching. But there, there had to be some sort of change in countenance when he spoke to this demon. I mean, the words here and the texts are just intense and pointed. Jesus just looks in this direction and says, Be silent. Come out of him. Jesus doesn't ask. He doesn't do some sort of ritual hocus pocus trying to convince or coerce the evil spirit to cooperate. He doesn't do some sort of dance like to try to get the evil spirit to come out. And that's what people would have done with witchcraft. You got to like do the thing and, and like dance around or clap three times or pull a hair or you know, whatever. They, it, it, there's nothing. There's just command. Just be silent. This is not witchcraft. This is the wielding of true authority. These are the kinds of words that have power to accomplish what they have commanded. This demon has no option but to yield to the power of the words spoken by the Holy One of God. He cries out with a loud voice and convulses as if reluctant to obey such a command, but unable to resist the command of the king. These words were like, let there be light, and light happened. Come out, and he was out. Jesus spoke with authority to this presence of evil, and it obeyed him. Praise the Lord. Jesus has that kind of authority over evil in this world and around this world. This moment, this confrontation between Jesus, the Son of God, and between one of the servants of the evil one, 
This is, a, this is a pulling back the curtain on what the kingdom of God will be like on the last day. In fact, much of Jesus' ministry is, is a pulling back the curtain on what the kingdom will be like when he comes again. You see, the, the, the demon didn't understand fully what Jesus was there to do. He thought that this is the end now. You're just going to come and you're just going to destroy all the evil and all the, all the sinfulness. But he did not understand the process of God's redemptive plan. First, Jesus was there to actually endure, to take on sin, death, and all the consequences of evil in the world. Jesus' first step was to come as a humble servant who would actually submit himself under all the weight of the evil in the world on the cross of Calvary on your behalf. Jesus' first step was to come as a humble servant who gave his life for his people. That's what Christ came to do in the first coming of Christ. His, he was making a beeline to the cross. But... Jesus' teaching was clear that the next time he comes, it will be different. Now he comes as a humble servant to give his life for the salvation of those who trust him. And the world is thrust into the last days. We are living in the last days where there is opportunity for people to repent and believe upon Jesus for the salvation of their souls. But the day that Satan, the day that the demon was fearing has not yet come. The day he was talking about when he said, will you now destroy us? Is, is this it? He's talking about Jesus' second coming. A future day. After the cross has already been overcome, after the resurrection has already happened, Jesus returns to this world, and this time it's not as a humble servant to take the punishment for those who don't deserve his grace. This time it's to exert punishment upon Satan, his demons, and all those who refuse to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God and the salvation he has provided. Revelation talks about this day. This is the day the demons fear. Revelation chapter 19 verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's the day that this demon trembled over in this moment. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who had received them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented, tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the day where the kingdom of God will be fully established. And while it's a fearful reality for demons, and it's a fearful reality for those who refuse to trust Christ for salvation, it is a wonderful reality for those who trust Christ. Revelation chapter 22, verse 3. I love this description of the kingdom of God Jesus will establish. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever.
So what are we to take away from this scene in the Gospel of Mark? Let me give you three takeaways to conclude this morning from this short story. Number one, uh, submit to Jesus' authoritative word. God's words are not nice suggestions, nor are they oppressive instructions designed to steal your joy. They are authoritative instructions designed to lead us into the promises of God's kingdom. Do you revere the word of God in your life? Do you read it on a daily basis, not just to learn from it, not just to check off something that you did it, not to earn God's favor, but to read it to submit yourself under its instruction more faithfully than the day before. Many of the people in the synagogue that day were astonished at the authority of Jesus. But as we will find out throughout the rest of the gospel, being amazed by Jesus' authority is not the same thing as submitting under Jesus' authority. A lot of people enjoyed the miracles. A lot of people were amazed. But few people followed Jesus as king. And the message of Mark is that true Christianity is following Jesus the king. Number two, make war against the evil in you and around you. We are all at war every day. We suffer trials and tribulations, temptations, accusations, sickness, and sorrow. And too often, we just chalk up a bad day to a series of neutral happenstance. And we don't pause to recognize that there are bigger things happening in us and around us, spiritual things, warfare that is to be fought. Paul warns his believers, ur urges his readers in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Make war. Get out of a peacetime mentality where you just coast from day to day and expect to be spiritually good at the end of the week. You don't coast into faithfulness. Make war against the evil in you and around you. And lastly, find hope in the day that the demons fear. We fight battles in this life with the confidence that the war is already won. We know the final score. We fight from a place of victory already accomplished. We fight with the verdicts written over our lives already. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't fight that we might gain some sort of status free from condemnation. We fight from the place where we are already not condemned because of what Christ has done for us. And we're freed to wage the war. Not to earn God's favor, but because we already have it. Every bit of progress in your sanctification is simply a becoming what you will always be when Christ returns. It's a move forward 
what will always be. So I want to close just with a reading of these lyrics that we're going to sing together that points us forward to that day. Here, listen to these words and then let's respond with them. Though the dark is overwhelming and the brightest lights grow dim, though the word of God is trampled on by foolish men, though the wicked never stumble and abound in every place, we will all be humbled when we see your face. And the demons we've been fighting, those without and those within, will be underneath our feet to never rise again. All our sin will be behind us through the blood of Christ erased, and we will taste your kindness when we see your face. Let's pray and rejoice over these realities. Lord, thank you for this moment in a synagogue in Capernaum over 2,000 years ago where you pulled back the curtain on the authority that you have over every evil thing in this world. And I pray that that story, that this text, this scripture, this historical moment where you rebuked this evil spirit and it had no choice but to obey, I pray that this would breathe confidence into your people this morning. Not only for the power that you wield presently, but the power that you will manifest for all of eternity. God, help us now to find hope in the Jesus who has all authority. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.